Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. My name is Scott Silk, and I'm the current editor here at Tales to Terrify, as well as your host for the evening. We have a beast of a story tonight, one of the longest we've run in a while, so I'll try to be brief. For the past six or seven months, you've been hearing the stories that I've personally chosen for the podcast, with the help of Stephen, Seth, and Drew. I'm a huge speculative fiction fan. I love sci-fi, fantasy, and especially horror. But what I love even more is being able to share my favorite stories with others. That's what's so much fun about being the editor. I get to read a ton of stories and pick out the best ones just for you. That said, people have differing tastes, and sometimes the stories I like best aren't going to be the same as what you might have chosen. Some of my favorite tropes are apocalypses and time travel, and I really like stories that have a bit of a weird vibe, so I'm going to tend to like those types of tales most. But I also look to air a variety of stories, so it doesn't feel like we're airing the same story week after week. So, I would be very grateful if any of you listeners out there dropped me a line on our Facebook page or Twitter, or by sending an email to talestoterrify at gmail.com. Let me know what kind of stories you like and dislike. Have you enjoyed the stories I've chosen for you? I sincerely hope so. Anyway, as I said before, we have a long story tonight. Goodbye to All That by G.L. McDorman. G.L. McDorman has served as a soldier, a spy, and a scholar. Following a passion for dead languages and mysterious ruins, he is in the process of earning his doctorate in medieval history at Princeton University, 
where he spends an inordinate amount of time mulling things over in the Gothic chapel, designed by weird fiction writer Ralph Adams Cram. His novella, The Quality of Mercy, is available now in print and digital, which, I'll add before the story starts, features the same protagonist as tonight's tale, so if you enjoy this story, check it out. And so, without further ado, I give you goodbye to all that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ice? What? Henslow looked back at the bartender, startled. No, whiskey. But do you want ice? The bartender asked again. Henslow sighed. The question exhausted him. Just the whiskey. When the glass appeared on the counter, Henslow examined it longingly, almost afraid to touch it. The whiskey was a golden amber, and in the flickering light of the lamp, it glistened like a jewel. This glass of whiskey was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. The bartender looked at him suspiciously. Is everything all right? Somewhere, far, far from here, Henslow explained. In the middle of the islands, there's a dark, magical lock. Its waters spill out and make their way down to the sea in a powerful cascade. Next to that river... There's a building where barley is transformed into liquid through a complex process of vaporization and condensation. The liquid is stored in oak casks that have been shipped across the ocean full of sherry. And after 25 years, the cask is opened and the liquid poured into that glass bottle and sent here to rest on your top shelf. This will be the first whiskey I've had in six years. It's the most expensive thing I've ever bought. I'm broke now, and I just want to look at it for a while before I drink it. Henslow returned to contemplating this very expensive, 
hopefully very fine, dram of whiskey. Well, admiring it, at least, while contemplating the events that had brought him back here to this city that had almost killed him six years ago. That experience seemed insignificant now, in light of the number of times he'd come much closer to violent death, fighting the company's wars thousands of miles from home. Truthfully, he hadn't really thought about it until nearly a month into the voyage home. For a short time, it had seemed terribly important again. Finally, he took the glass in his fingers and lifted it to his nose. Orange, pear, a hint of smoke. His mouth turned upward in an uncontrollable smile. But this wasn't meant to be that kind of moment. Henslow said the names out loud, as he'd promised, catching the attention of the bartender, who wisely chose to ignore him, and then he tipped back the glass. Liquid velvet, full of apricots, figs, honey, and at the end a burst of smoke and cinnamon. It was perfect. He held onto the empty glass for a while, twisting it around in his fingers. Henslow would never taste this again, but he knew that the memory of this whiskey would fill his mind during his dying moments. He recited the names again, just to be sure, but now it was a time for other things. Maybe he should have gone to Northwall with Cleve and Fraser, but a man keeps his promises. This certainly wasn't the place for him. The women here would outclass him on his best day. And anyway, he was broke now. But where to go? Suddenly, an explosion of sound off to his right startled Henslow back to his present surroundings. He turned and scanned the interior of the hotel bar. Against the background of sapphire and gold was a young woman in a ruby jacket standing over a table. Her chair tipped over her right hand clenched in a tight fist and vaguely aimed at the man still seated in the chair opposite. She made a crisp left face, tugged at the bottom of her jacket, and marched toward the bar where Henslow sat. Her hair was blonde, pulled tightly back in a bun, save for two dangling curls on either side of her face. Evidently, hairstyles had changed since he'd been away. With a look on his face that was somehow simultaneously eager and frightened, the bartender stopped muddling in orange and moved quickly in order to be where the woman was heading before she arrived. He put on an expressionless expression and waited for her. Can I help you, Miss Ryburn? Aka Dyson. The twelve, not the eighteen. A double, if you please. The bartender turned to the shelf behind him. To no one in particular, Henslow muttered. He doesn't bother her about any ice. The woman turned her head at a precise right angle to glare at him. Can I help you, sir? Her tone was intended to shame Henslow into silence, but her eyes were full of tears. This is the first time a woman had spoken to him in six years. Henslow smiled more to himself than at Ms. Ryburn, who still didn't seem quite real. Buy me a drink. 
I do not believe that is how it works. This was somewhere between disgust and disapproval, which was where Henslow felt most comfortable. Choosing to hear it as banter, he laughed. Well, I've just spent the last of my discharge pay, so I'm afraid it can't work any other way. The bartender handed her the whiskey, and she walked away without acknowledging Henslow. He returned the sentiment and went back to planning the rest of his evening. Miss Ryburn? It was the bartender. Henslow looked up and saw that she had returned. Pour one for him as well. That's the first time I've known her to make an apology, the bartender said when he set the glass on the counter. Henslow took it and started to get up. The bartender reached over and put a hand on his shoulder. But it wasn't an invitation. Henslow scanned the room again. The man who had been with Ms. Ryburn was gone, and now she sat at another table, clenching the whiskey in her hand. This was not an invitation, sir, and you would be well advised to let me alone. He started to walk away, but stopped himself. Look, you've bought me a drink, and I'm grateful for it, more than you can know. You're clearly upset about something, so let me return the favor the only way I can. Give your troubles to a stranger. You'll sleep better. He put his hand on the empty chair and waited. When she didn't say anything, he sat down. She seemed only half aware of him. The whiskey's for my father. He was a soldier once, before I was born. He... She looked away. He died recently. Henslow leaned forward. Tell me about him. No, that's not... She looked away again. Where? What? Where have you been? Oh, it was his turn to look away. Why, Poquette? Is it true what they say? They're huge black beasts with eight arms? <laughs> Henslow laughed. It's only four arms. And they're silver. He took a drink. I don't mean grey, but real silver. Metallic. The glisten in the sun, like light on steel. When you're close enough, you can see your reflection in their fur. Miss Ryburn didn't say anything. Maybe she wasn't even listening. My brother is missing. She said at last, calmly, barely audible, not quite looking at Henslow. Someone took him. We were visiting Grafton School. I was with the headmaster. James plays rugby. He was being shown the yards, but he never came back. Henslow had assumed that Miss Ryburn's anger was directed at the other man. This was unexpected. How is that possible? If he was being shown, then someone was doing the showing. Never mind that, he added before she could answer. When did this happen? Today? Then shouldn't we be looking for him? Henslow shifted his weight to stand up, but a stern look from Miss Ryburn stopped him. She must be a schoolteacher. It has already been several days. The police have been involved and found nothing. 
I've hired a private detective, and he has just informed me there is nothing to find that James is likely dead and that I should forget about him. That man you were with was the detective. I thought he was your boyfriend. Another stern look, this one suggesting that if he said anything like that again, he'd have to give back the whiskey. What do you do now? Go back to Exum and arrange another funeral. She took a long, angry drink of her whiskey. Henslow had been shocked at first, but now he was sympathetic. You can't give up. Several days, well, it is perhaps a long time, but it's not long enough to stop searching. Look, I have some experience with searching for people. The Mukaita... One of the reasons the Mukaita are... Uh, Henslow drifted off. Well, that's not the point. He took a deep breath. The worst moments weren't when we knew our friends were dead. The worst moments were when we gave up. When we chose not to try. When we left them. And that's what will happen if you give up. Despair. Despair and guilt and those don't go away. Not ever, as far as I can tell. It's obvious that you're angry, but quitting doesn't hurt that detective. It doesn't hurt the police. It hurts you. Forever. And it hurts James. Don't be so quick to assume that he's beyond help. Or even that he needs help. His father just died. It doesn't sound like your mother has been around for a while, and you've come here to find a place to leave him... Miss Ryburn straightened her back with mechanical precision, and the color drained from her face. Listen here. No, Henslow talked over her. You listen. I don't mean any offense, but put yourself in his shoes. Try to empathize with the boy. His world was out of control, and he did the only thing he could think of to gain control of it again. He's run off, and he can be found. We've only just met, but already I've discovered some important things about you. You have a cold, calculating rage, and you have money. Put those to work for you. She stared into Henslow's face as if she were looking for something. Will you help me? This caught him off guard. I don't know the first thing about detecting or about police work. I haven't even been in the city for years. Let me tell you something important that I've discovered about you. You know how to listen, and you make people want to trust you. Put those to work for me. As the city and its aristocracy grew richer from the profits of empire, the Grafton alumni grew more extravagant in their patronage, and the result was an ugly mess of gorgeous buildings jumbled together over five centuries of changing architectural fashion. Behind a stone wall, at least four centuries old, Grafton School occupied a square half-mile atop a hill two miles outside the city. The hill was properly called Danby Hill, but that was long forgotten and was properly known as Grafton Hill, or just Grafton, as school and hill took on a single identity. From the hill, Henslow had a commanding view of the sprawling city. The spires of the churches, the towers of the palaces, 
and the cranes at the docks towering above the houses like stalagmites, pale black against the gray, dreary horizon. The city was not beautiful and Henslow found himself strangely homesick for the open skies and the white peaks of Waipuket, already and mercifully forgetting the horrific violence. The city was not beautiful, but she had a hypnotic power over him, and he could have stood there all day in the drizzle admiring her, struggling to comprehend her. "'Are you done?' Miss Ryburn asked in a tone that was somewhere between impatience and criticism. Henslow turned to face her. Against the backdrop of the great iron door in the stone wall, her bright red coat and her blonde hair seemed out of place. He wondered if it was safe to bring her into his den of teenaged boys. He smiled. I'm ready. The office of Headmaster Reverend Charles was near the top of an unfinished tower attached to a chapel in the heart of the labyrinthine campus. It soared over the rest of the school, red brick and vaulted windows visible behind the scaffolding. To Henslow, the tower appeared more like a factory chimney than the center of such a prestigious institution, but no doubt it would look subtly impressive when the mechanical clock and the steeple were in place. Eight dizzying flights of stairs later, he and Miss Ryburn sat in front of the headmaster's desk. Charles had an unsympathetic face, less wrinkled than it should have been, but with an orderly head of white hair and a large beak of a nose that betrayed his old age. Behind him, on a dark wood-paneled space between a series of bookshelves, the school crest informed Henslow, that in this office, the dignity of the institution would stand above all else. Aside from the array of books, a variety of weapons decorated the room, including a longbow, an executioner's axe, and a bone-handled dagger in a jeweled sheath resting on the desk. In one corner, a tournament lance leaned against a bookshelf, while in the other was a mukata, wailing harpoon. Twelve feet of polished steel, affixed to which were two shaggy blue and purple feathers from a giant tukahe. The entire office had been designed to infect undisciplined students with dread and terror. Headmaster Charles caught him eyeing the harpoon. Are you keenly interested in weaponry, Mr. Henslow? No, not as perhaps, Miss Ryburn interjected. We could skip this part and get to the matter at hand. Charles sighed, but remained motionless in his chair. Miss Ryburn, I appreciate your distress, but the police have assured me that the matter at hand was quite settled. On behalf of the school and the parish, allow me to offer you our condolences. The loss of a boy always saddens me. James has been in my prayers. Of course you'll not offer any real help, will you? Now the headmaster placed his hands on his desk, his ornate rings thudding on the wood. Miss Ryburn, what do you want? What do you think happened here? Grafton School has sat atop this hill for centuries, caring for boys, educating them, 
teaching them to become the upstanding men our empire deserves. Ministers of state, generals, admirals, scholars, priests, and the giants of commerce and industry have grown up here. Enter any room where important matters are being decided, and there you will find Grafton Man. But you think you came to apply for admission and what? Someone abducted your brother? I ask again, Miss Ryburn, what do you think happened here? Henslow didn't give her a chance to answer. I think we got started off badly, Reverend Charles. We didn't come here to interview you again, and I agree that this isn't the sort of institution where something awful would happen to a boy like James. But if I'm to take Miss Ryburn's case and to uphold the standards of my profession, I need to start here. He leaned forward a bit and noticed on the headmaster's desk a small green stone carved into the form of a winged, eight-eyed serpent, a religious icon the Mukaita wore around their necks. He wanted to touch it. He imagined how cold it would feel in his hand, how it would begin to chill him if he held it too long. He looked at Charles. May I? The headmaster met Hanslow's gaze and held it for a beat. I'd rather you didn't. Henslow's attention snapped back to the present. Uh, of course. Took him another few heartbeats to regain his focus. Uh, what, what I really need from you, Reverend, is permission to look around the yard. I'd be grateful if the rugby coach could take me around, retrace the events of the day with me. But since we have his statements on record, it wouldn't be strictly necessary. Charles stood up, a commanding gesture that brought Henslow and Miss Ryburn to their feet. You can meet Master Putnam in the yard, but, Miss Ryburn, this must be the last time. Surely you can appreciate how disruptive the presence of police and detectives is for our boys. Once you leave today, you will not be welcome back. In the stairwell, Miss Ryburn started to ask Hemlow a question, but he cut her off. Not here. Besides coaching the rugby team, Master Putnam was also an instructor of mathematics. He was about forty, squat, muscled, clearly a man well-suited for rugby, though Henslow knew very little about the game. Despite his athleticism, Putnam appeared exhausted, as if he hadn't slept in several nights. He tried to hide his natural accent when he spoke, but Henslow couldn't tell whether he was hiding class or region. Both, perhaps. Either way, he had done very well to become a master at Grafton. His story about the day that James disappeared was simple, though Henslow noted that he avoided looking at Ms. Ryburn when he told it. The headmaster was eager for the endowment that would come with James's enrollment, so Putnam wanted to put on a good show for the boy. He had taken James around the various training facilities, saving the impressive yard for last so as to leave him with the excitement of future matches. As they were about to head to the yard, a porter had come to say that Putnam was urgently needed for a few moments 
to supervise the replacement of some equipment. James asked if he could go on to the yard without me, and I didn't see any harm in it. Now he looked at Miss Ryburn. I told you before, ma'am, how sorry I am. How terrible I feel. It was a mistake. I know I shouldn't have left him alone. Did the porter stay with James? asked Henslow. No, he went with me. And when you went to the yard, James wasn't there? He wasn't anywhere after that. So you don't actually know that James ever went to the yard. But the reports from the police and from Detective Rose contain your statement that the yard was his last known location. Putnam blinked as if this discrepancy had never occurred to him. I, I guess that's right. I guess it's just that at the yard is where I realized something was wrong. So I've been thinking of that as the place where he went missing. Henslow insisted on looking around the training rooms where James had actually last been seen, and Ms. Ryburn insisted on coming with him, despite his assurance that the experience of a male changing room isn't something from which a woman can easily recover. Nothing seemed out of order. There were hooks for clothes, benches for sitting to remove muddy boots, and pigeonholes for storing them. The important feature, and this was evidently what Putnam had wanted to show James, was the impressive modern shower system. Bathers could operate a hand pump to bring heated water from a nearby basin through a series of pipes painted to resemble bamboo until it sprinkled gently from an overhead nozzle. Henslow had heard of this, but had never seen one before, and the thought of warm water reminded him of how damp and cold he was, how much this land that had been his home for most of his life had become strange and uncomfortable. Putnam's office consisted of a paper-strewn desk and a handful of chairs, but there was also a closed door in the back wall. Henslow had been careful to keep his bearings, and he was certain that this wall was the outer wall that surrounded the campus, merely covered over with plaster, and that there should not be a doorway into it. He stepped to the door and grabbed the handle. That's locked! Putnam nearly shouted. Henslow put on his best sergeant expression. Open it! I don't have the key! I've been here for fifteen years, and I've never seen that door open. Miss Ryburn took an angry step forward. There is a mysterious locked door in your office, the last place where you saw my brother, and you have never mentioned it? You will open this door immediately. Putnam stammered before he could finally form a complete word. Y you'll have to ask the headmaster about it. I don't have a key, and I don't know who does. Henslow pounded on the door a few times. It's just a shallow closet, Miss Ryburn. I want it opened. Her face was turning as red as her coat. Henslow wanted the door open too, but what he wanted more was for Miss Ryburn to mask her interest in it. He tried to give her a look that said as much. James isn't in there, and it doesn't lead anywhere.
Tell me what we are doing out here, if you please. Henslow and Miss Ryburn had made half a circuit around the wall of Grafton School, stepping carefully on the narrow ledge between the wall and the overhanging lip of a cliff, an eager wind occasionally blowing cold rain into their faces. Searching for a door, Henslow explained. This is about where Putnam's office is on the other side. Miss Ryburn leaned closer to him. I do not see anything. No. I don't think there's anything to see. Henslow turned his attention from the wall to the cliff, peering down the two hundred feet to the base, where a score of grey stone mausoleums were scattered among groves of yellow-leaved oak trees. We know that door doesn't lead to the outside. Not directly, at least. He turned back from the cliff to face Miss Ryburn. We need to talk about what to do next. What do you suggest? Henslow shrugged. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. You said you wanted me to listen, and I have. And something isn't right. Putnam or Charles is hiding something. Maybe they both are. I want to know what's behind that door. I want to know how someone like Putnam can get a job teaching maths to the sons of lords, and I want to know why Charles has Mukaita religious icons in his office. But I don't know what to do about it. Not in civilized society, anyway. Miss Ryburn's eyes were sullen as she tried but failed to force her lips into a smile. I do. The rain was colder and heavier now, and even though Henslow had lost or forgotten his native indifference to such things, he stood outside of number 27 Adams Street, staring at the gold plaque upon which was embossed the Association for the Colonization of Lutrota and Waipukat. The building was not as impressive as the marble Colin Barat House on Silver Hall Street, but inside the five-story brick house was a highly efficient organization devoted solely to the exploitation of the underclasses of the city and the inhabitants of the far corners of the world for the purpose of being able to write its name on rare metals dug out of the black earth. Henslow's objective here was to discover whether Headmaster Reverend Charles had ever been an employee of the company while Ms. Ryburn visited the city property records office in the Minster. Neither of them had any legitimate claim to the information they were after, but she at least had the advantage of being a beautiful woman in a world that favored beautiful women, a world that Henslow had largely forgotten, a world to which he still wasn't certain he ought to have returned. He'd wanted a drink before walking into this building, but in the deep chamber of his mind, where information was processed without the burden of words or thoughts, he knew that if James wasn't already dead, he would be soon, and there was no time for self-pity or self-indulgence. The personal records office was, of course, in the basement lit by an extravagant number of ornate gas mantles. A scrawny, balding man with glasses sat behind the counter reading a newspaper, pretending not to notice Henslow. 
He was a man who couldn't move Henslow an inch if he shoved him with all his might. Here was a man who wouldn't know which end of a rifle to point at the enemy. Yet here he held all the power, and he knew it, and he derived a perverse satisfaction from it. But Henslow didn't have time to wait for him. My name is Henslow. I've just returned from my Phuket. I'm looking for work, and I need my records. The clerk sighed, as if having to interact with another human being would be the low point of his day. He didn't even bother to put down the newspaper. You have to wait two days for the paper that came with your ship to be processed. It's been three. The clerk sighed, methodically putting down his newspaper, and stood up. You'll have to fill out a form, and it will take at least two hours to make a copy. I can wait. In fact, I'm hoping you can give me something to do in the meantime. Some friends. Their parents. I lost some friends, and I meant to talk to their parents about what happened. But I don't know how to find them. Could I look for the addresses and their records? We don't give records to people to whom they don't belong, Mr. Henslow. You can wait over there for your file. Henslow slapped his hand on the counter. They're dead. They're my friends, and they're dead. And I promised them that if they didn't come home, I would tell their families about it. They made the same promise to me. And if I was the one whose bones were piled in the corner of a Mukaita cave, and my friend came in here and said, Paul Hemslow is dead, and I want to tell his wife about it. I'd want you to give him her address. I made a promise. Can you help me be the sort of man who keeps his promises? The clerk looked at him for a moment, and Henslow could see he was unmoved by this speech, but was weighing the risk of violating the rules against the aggravation of having to put up with Henslow. In the end, the man's desire for solitude and quiet and the ignorance of the world outside won out. I can't give you copies, but there's a room down the hall where you can look through the files. Give me the names. When the files arrived, there were five of them, and the one labeled Charles T.E. Rev was frayed, and the red dye faded to a benign pink, much older than the others. Inside was the usual paperwork about medical exams and reviews of his performance by his commanding officer, his initial contract of service, promotions, and orders transferring him to various units. There wasn't anything uniquely interesting in any of this. Charles had been a field chaplain during the initial invasion force thirty years ago, and when he left ten years later, he'd become the post-chaplain of Fort James the company's first permanent garrison. The final section was devoted to the host of commendations that Charles had accrued during his ten years in service. Most of these, as with the rest of the file, were routine forms with only a paragraph describing the circumstances of the bravery, or the diligence, or the efficiency that demanded acknowledgement in the form of shiny medallions to wear at formal dinners. But toward the end, there was a letter in the top margin of which someone had written in red ink. 
Distinguished Gallantry 12th of January, 1828 From Colonel John Francis Hopesmith, Commander, Fort Denzel, To General William Richardson, 27 Adams Street, Embankment We have lost an entire battalion, all six hundred men, save for only three. The following report is taken from the statements of the survivors. Lieutenant Edward Williams, Private Robert Jones, and Reverend Lieutenant Thomas Charles. After our overwhelming victory defending Fort Denzel, of which you have had my account, on 23rd September, I ordered 1st Battalion to sail north and take control of Huarmada Bay in accordance with company directives. The beasts offered some resistance, but this was easily overcome, with only minor losses. Lieutenant Colonel Stevenson dispatched the several platoons of B Company to scout beyond the bay in order to ascertain the most strategic areas for the establishment of defensive structures. Camped by a river roughly fifteen miles in the direction of Mount Bryan, the beasts fell upon Second Platoon in the middle of the night, killing those who reacted quickly to the disturbance, but taking prisoner the rest, nearly seventy men. The beasts marched our soldiers into the mountains and locked them in cages within a sprawling system of caves. Reverend Lieutenant Charles had been with us since the beginning, and he has studied the beast's language, if it is accurate to give the label speech to such horrid sounds. Reverend Lieutenant Charles endeavored to communicate with them, but while he was certain that they understood his meaning, every attempt elicited a violent reaction from the beasts. At first, the beasts limited their outbursts to rattling the cages, but rapidly they began to execute a prisoner whenever Reverend Lieutenant Charles spoke their own language to them. At least, that is what he thought at the time. But when after a few days the other platoons of B Company arrived in chains, the remaining soldiers from 2nd Platoon were moved to cages in another, larger cave. Here the survivors had the opportunity to observe more carefully the behavior of the beasts, and discovered that they were not merely executing prisoners, performing religious sacrifices to their snake gods. Now thoroughly convinced that the beasts were beyond reason, Reverend Lieutenant Charles turned his attention to the condition of the souls in his care. Perhaps a month into their captivity, when much of B Company had suffered under the knives of these inhuman priests, the beasts raided the camp of Huarmada Bay, slaughtered half of our men, and captured the rest. When Lieutenant Colonel Stevenson arrived at the beasts' caves, he quickly began to organize an escape attempt. It took over a month of careful planning, but at the end of November, Lieutenant Colonel Stevenson killed one of the guards with a makeshift blade, and he and his cellmates set about releasing their comrades and quietly disposing of the other guards. Without incident, they found their way out of the caves, where the beasts maintain a village of sorts. Dwellings for priests and guards. First Battalion overwhelmed the unsuspecting creatures and proceeded to follow a river downward and, hopefully, out of the mountains. They traveled for two days, 
following the course of the river into a broad valley where an army of beasts was waiting for them. Armed only with the few weapons they had taken from their jailers, Lieutenant Colonel Stevenson felt that resistance would be pointless, and ordered his officers to flee in different directions in the hope that some of them might survive the encounter and escape to Fort Denzel. Lieutenant Williams ascribes their success in escaping to the fact that his platoon now consisted of only six men, and that their small number enabled them to retreat back up the river unnoticed by the beasts. It took them seven weeks to make their way back to Fort James, and they lost half their number along the way. It may be the others also managed to escape the battle at the valley, and are journeying here as I write and I will remain hopeful. Below this last sentence, a strip of paper had been pasted on top of this last one to cover what was written there. Henslow held the paper to the lamp and could make out a bit more that the clerk had unintentionally copied, hypnotized by his routine task. While unspeakably terrible, this experience has given the survivors valuable information and insight, and I have included their observations about the beasts as a separate report. But, Bill, the situation is about to become dire. We may be able to hold out for a year, maybe a little more, but we need more troops right away. Not just to replace 1st Battalion, but to supply a 2nd Brigade. I know that the banks are reticent to... Henslow leaned back in his chair. This was a highly sanitized report. He'd seen men rescued from Mukaita Caves, and all of them had descended into one or another form of madness. Some of them came back from it, but not right away, and never completely. And none of them had witnessed scores of their comrades cut open and bled like cattle. Henslow couldn't imagine anyone recovering from that. Yet, here was Charles, caring for the children of lords and rich bankers, the custodian of the Empire's future, and Lieutenant Edward Williams must be the younger version of General Williams, now the commander of the company's armies. These men had not only survived the caves, they had come home and risen to positions of power and authority. It couldn't have been easy at first. He looked at the other folders on the desk in front of him. It hadn't been that easy for his friends. When they'd rescued Mackenzie, he was so deep in madness that they'd had to lock him up. When they let him out a few weeks later, they'd wish they hadn't. And then Henslow understood. Henslow could see that Henry Rose was a man who made sensible decisions. His office was on the brigade. His suit was still in its better days. He had a secretary and had even offered Henslow a cigar. Rose had a look that was almost too polished, more like an insurance agent than a policeman. Yet, for all his polish, his nose was far too large for his face and his voice was too high for a man of his build, and Henslow almost thought that the sound was mechanical. Rose was younger than Henslow, and he couldn't have been in business for more than six or seven years, 
Henslow was simultaneously impressed and envious. Rose's success reminded Henslow that he himself was largely incapable of making sensible decisions, and that the only time his life had any real purpose was when he was fighting for it thousands of miles from home. Rose stared across the desk at Henslow, who stared back. After a moment, Rose blinked. Let me get right to it. You don't look like you can afford my services, but you also look like a man who knows that. So why don't you tell me why you're here? But you should know up front, I keep a pistol in this drawer. I've taken over this search for James Ryburn, Mr. Rose, and I thought I might impose upon you to answer a few questions, as a professional courtesy. There isn't much to say. The police say the boy is dead. I return Miss Ryburn's money, and the case, such as there ever was one, is closed. Because the police say so? Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the sole purpose of our profession to investigate matters that the police won't? Rose smirked. What's your name again? Henslow? You're new to this business, so let me tell you a little about it. We don't work against the police under any circumstances. Not even if they're in the wrong. Not even if they've stolen the diamond or abducted the child. Not even if the person pretending to be long-lost cousin so-and-so who's going to inherit the whole estate turns out to be a crooked constable. Because this is a business, not a mission. I do this for the money, and I'm not going to do anything that's going to prevent me from spending that money on living well. You shouldn't either. So when the police come around to say drop a case, and they give you a bottle of whiskey for your trouble, you drop the case, and you don't ask questions. And you don't ask questions from the next guy, especially when he's the type who wants to help the pretty blonde lady more than he wants to save his own skin. Now Henslow smirked. And that philosophy is clearly working out well for you. But maybe you'll bend your rules a little bit and answer a procedural question. Did the police tell you to drop the case after you'd already figured out what happened to James? This conversation has gotten dull. I didn't get any further than the school, and that's all I'll say on the matter. If you know what's good for you, you'll run back to the lady and tell her to go home to West Ham or wherever she's from. But whatever you do, it's time for you to go. Was it the nose or the voice? I don't know what you're talking about, Henslow. It must have been something. The only way a man could be this callous about saving the life of a child is if he's still angry that his schoolmates poked fun at him. Or maybe your mother didn't love you enough. Either way, you should think about getting over it. Henslow stood up. Just so we understand each other. If I thought you knew where James was, I'd beat it out of you right now. And that pistol in the drawer wouldn't be enough to stop me. When Henslow stepped outside, the two uniformed constables were waiting for him on the sidewalk. They didn't even bother to say anything before the one pinned his arms behind him and the other punched him in the gut several times. When Henslow started to collapse, they let him slump to the ground, gasping for breath. The one who'd done the punching squatted in front of him. 
In this city, you need a license to be a private detective. He stood up, stepped over Henslow, and the pair of them walked into Rose's building. At least it had stopped raining. The land to the north of Grafton Hill had once been an aristocratic hunting ground. Now it was becoming Pevenmere Cemetery, a resting place for the new rich of the city's business class. There were perhaps two dozen mausoleums on the site, their grey stone fashioned to suggest, if not fully resemble, the classic architecture of the ancients. Ms. Ryburn had discovered that Putnam owned one of these, and nearly ten acres around it. The plot covered the entire base of the cliff, atop which Grafton School sat, effectively giving control of the area to the school's rugby coach. This would have been suspicious, even if Henslow hadn't already guessed what had happened to James. Now it was merely a question of whether they were too late. Shine the lamp on the door, he ordered. The door was iron, embossed with ancient heroic figures locked in combat. Spear against spear. More urgently, the door was bolted. I'm going to use the pry bar. Do you know how? I've never done this before, if that's what you mean. But I have a pretty strong grasp of the general principles involved in breaking things. The task proved to be much more difficult than he expected. But after forcing the pry bar with all his might a dozen times, the lock began to give. And after three more pushes, the lock sprang and the door opened outward. Ms. Ryburn focused the light inside the mausoleum, and Henslow rushed inside, half expecting Putnam to be hiding in the shadows. There! Miss Ryburn pointed at the sarcophagus on the left. Do you see the lines underneath? That must be a door. Help me move this. Once they had shoved the sarcophagus out of the way, Henslow pulled open the trap door to reveal the stone staircase spiraling down into the darkness. It doesn't look like anyone's home, but let's be silent from this point on. It will be difficult to resist calling out for your brother, but don't do it. Finding him is only the first step, and we need to proceed with our ultimate objective in mind at all times. Do you remember what I said about the lamp? Shine it in their eyes. She sounded eager to do it. At the bottom of the stairs, they encountered another locked door. Henslow was no longer confident that they were alone in this dungeon. The anticipation of conflict, the nervous excitement that agitates one's muscles, began to possess him now. But he willed himself into a state of focus, playing in his mind a piece of violin music he'd heard once six years ago, and which had never left him. He listened. He heard nothing. He positioned the crowbar, and this time, in three quick moves, he had the door open. Henslow burst into the next room, while behind him Miss Ryburn stayed in the doorway, quickly shining the lamp around. They seemed to be alone, but the room was too big for the lamp to illuminate it all at once. Henslow stopped and listened. 
He kept a tight grip on the pry bar, but all he heard was the beating of his own heart. It was hot in here, and rank, like an animal den. Ms. Ryburn stepped into the room and began to systematically light the chamber, one small area at a time. It was a low, broad dome made of smooth gray stone, but covered with paintings both hideous and beautiful. The top of the dome was black, with small points of white and yellow and red, like stars. When his eyes had adjusted more fully, Henslow could see that among these colored stars were some a darker shade of black than the background. A blackness that wasn't merely the absence of light, but a blackness that seemed to consume light, to devour it. Around the edges of the dome, strange creatures were on display in broad, intertwining strokes of thinly painted crimson, jade, and indigo. Henslow recognized some of these, and there were several examples of the winged serpent, here with eight eyes of dripping scarlet, as if they were weeping blood. In the center of the chamber was a rectangular slab of white alabaster, atop pillars of black marble with capitals of fern leaves expertly carved, as if they were swaying in the breeze of a summer evening. Henslow stepped forward and saw slits of slowly increasing depth cut into the alabaster slab, all leading to a spout at one end, where the blood of sacrifices could drip into a clay jar to be stored for some other dread ritual. Ms. Ryburn gasped when she saw the blood stains on the floor. We must hurry! At the other end of the chamber was another door, mercifully unlocked. Henslow had anticipated a hallway or a small room, but he was greeted by the unending darkness of another vast space. This room had not received the architectural or artistic care of the temple, and it was cluttered with shelves, cabinets, clusters of tall clay jars, and several iron cages. Miss Ryburn hastened to the cages, and Henslow followed her hoping to find James asleep on the floor. But they were empty, every one of them. Let's check the cabinets. When they reached the other end of the room, Henslow saw that hundreds of human skulls rested on the shelves. Most of them had been children, but some were larger, perhaps from adults or adolescents. Without thinking, he removed the lid from one of the jars beneath the shelves. It was full of blood, black in the dim light, and it smelled of rotten copper. Henslow gagged and nearly vomited. Ten feet from him, Miss Ryburn was furiously throwing open the doors of cabinets, revealing a horde of trinkets. She came finally to a series of bins and let out a gasping, No! Henslow joined her and saw that the bins were full of clothes. Some of these belonged to James? Yes, she whispered. Come on, then. There's another door over there. This was locked, and it took Henslow several tries to pry it open. Forgetting the plan, Miss Ryburn started into the next room, 
but Henslow stopped her. It turned out not to be another room, but another spiraling staircase, ascending higher than he could see by the light of the lamp. He stepped back into the room and closed the door. What are you doing? This is it, Henslow said calmly. This is all there is. Those stairs lead to Putnam's office. I'm sorry. No. Now her voice was shaking. No. Ms. Ryburn returned to the open cabinets and began rifling through their contents, spilling watches and rings and spectacles on the floor. It's not here. It's not here. What's not here? Our father's watch. He's still alive. He's still alive. Henslow took the lamp from her hand and set it on the floor so he could see her face. He's still alive, she repeated, but he could see in her eyes the reluctant admission that it wasn't true. Her breath quickened and the tears began to well. Not tears of sorrow or despair, but tears of wrath and hatred. I will murder them. I will slice them into pieces while they sleep. They will die in terror for what they have done. I will kill and kill and kill and kill until the whole earth shakes. She started toward the door, but Henslow grabbed her arm to stop her. She whirled on him. Do not touch me! He stepped around her, blocking her path. Not tonight. He didn't ever want her to do it, of course, but that was a conversation to be had later. This is bigger than Putnam and Charles, and if we do this now, we'll never find the rest of them. Maybe you'll feel better for killing the pair of them, but I won't. I will never feel right again, knowing that there are still people out there killing children to earn favor with some imaginary flying snake. If we're going to do this, let's do it right. They will pay for this, I promise you. Overnight, the clouds had lifted, and now the city was blessed with one of those rare autumn days, when the sun shines, and the magpies sing, and the air smells crisp, and strangers smile at each other. And the light, with nothing but blue sky behind it, with the sounds of happy boys playing at football or rugby on their morning recess, Grafton School seemed less menacing less like a fortress, and more like the sort of place Henslow wished he'd grown up. Yet, despite its sudden warmth and charm, it remained true that the ruler of this little domain was a monster. When Henslow reminded the porter that he'd been here the day before in the company of the very pretty Miss Ryburn, the man agreed to inform the headmaster that he wished to see him. After a long wait of perhaps an hour, Putnam appeared. He'll see you now. His accent was stronger today. Charles's office was unchanged since yesterday morning, save for the presence on his desk of a red folder open to Henslow's end-of-service review. Next to it was the ceremonial dagger, closer to hand than it had been. Well, Padre, I think we need to have a talk. The headmaster closed the folder and arranged it neatly in front of him. 
then subconsciously moved the dagger closer so it would sit the same distance from the folder as the pen set on his left. Everything was symmetrical. His kingdom was in order. You're coming, Mr. Henslow, and I think you know it. I've heard that before, but that's not why I'm here. I see. You're here about the girl. You shouldn't have taken her downstairs. You ought to have known better. Yesterday she was but a sparrow, flitting about and chirping in the wind, a nuisance. Today she is a falcon, soaring, watching, preparing to dive, a menace. Henslow's eyes went to the dagger, and then to the executioner's axe in the corner. He wouldn't let Miss Ryburn kill Charles for the sake of vengeance. But would he do it to protect her? The answer didn't really matter, of course, because even if he killed Charles, even if he killed Putnam, and even if he could get an audience with General Williams and kill him, the others, whoever they were, would still do away with her. Violence was not the way to protect her now. Charles smiled, as if he could read Henslow's mind, and what he found there amused him. Do you think I'm a monster, Mr. Henslow? You murder children. There are lots of labels for someone like you. Monster is one of them. I have never murdered anyone. Would you like a drink? I think I need one. Charles stood up turning his back to Henslow, and opened a cabinet. Do you like brandy? As I've gotten older, I've found it does a better job of warming my bones than whiskey. He uncorked an old bottle with a faded label and poured a double measure of liquid mahogany. Henslow could smell the rich, earthy chocolate from across the room. I have never murdered anyone, Charles repeated as he corked the bottle and replaced it, his back still to Henslow. A sacrifice isn't murder, Mr. Henslow. A sacrifice is a gift for the intended and for the offering. He turned to face Henslow again, a glass in each hand. And it has pained me every time, as it should. You see, it isn't a sacrifice if you aren't giving up something that matters to you, and they will know the difference. Charles placed a glass in front of Henslow and returned to his chair. Are you suggesting that the Mukaitas secretly love us, and that they're really quite sad about murdering my friends and yours? Charles smiled again. Oh, you misunderstand completely. They don't sacrifice us. We could never be a sacrifice for them, because, as you point out, we aren't of them. No, they make their own sacrifices, adolescents usually. They volunteer for it, because it pleases the gods, because it is the only way to ensure the safety of their people, their family, their friends. No, no, Mr. Henslow. When they kill us on their altars, it is not a sacrifice. It is a lesson. They are trying to teach us how to prepare. 
That's why they make us watch. So we'll know the motions. The gestures. The words. James has volunteered, then. Is that what you're saying? It is an unfortunate situation. But it will not be this way forever. As the Mukaita taught me, I want to teach the whole world. I want to save humanity, Mr. Henslow. Ours is a missionary religion, and my mission is here, in this school. Boys volunteer quite often, you see. Our numbers aren't large enough to permit us to accept them, except in special circumstances. So we take boys like James, for now. But our ranks are growing. Every year I reveal the truth to more and more boys. And when they are older, they instruct their families, and we grow. I dream of a world where we exist in the open, a world where we are the church. I won't live to see that world, but Putnam will. And so can you. I'll say it again, Mr. Henslow. They're coming, and you know it. Charles tapped his fingers on Henslow's file. They let you see it, Paul. They showed it to you. Neither of them said anything for a moment. Henslow had been ignoring the brandy in front of him, but now he lifted it to his mouth and took a long drink, not really tasting it at all. It was a shame to drink it that way. That's the price of Miss Ryburn's life. Of course not. If you don't truly believe, if you don't feel it in your soul, then your participation is without meaning, without value. No, she is my gift to you. But she is your responsibility now. And when you are ready, I will still be here. Henslow! It was Davis, the dock manager. Henslow was busy unloading six hundred tons of coffee from the Lady Ellington. Henslow, my office! Davis's office was a desk in a closet, cluttered with charts and logs and reports. Waiting for him there was Miss Ryburn in her ruby jacket. It had been two months since he'd seen her, since she had returned to Exum. Henslow's surprise quickly gave way to worry. What are you doing here? He smiled and tried it again. You've surprised me. It's very nice to see you, Miss Ryburn. She gave him her best blank expression. Mr. Henslow, I want you to come with me. It is nice to see you, but I have work to do. We're close to earning plus money today, and I could use it. They drove north in Kingsland, not speaking to each other. After half an hour, they stopped in front of a house on the high street, three stories of new bricks, clean windows, and a bright red door. The sign outside said, Ryburn & Co. You've moved here. Yes, 
Proceed to the top floor, please. At the top of the stairs, Henslow encountered a wooden door with a glass pane in the upper half. Painted there were the words P.T. Henslow, Licensed Investigator. Go in, Ms. Ryburn instructed. I've arranged your licensing and you will find all of the paperwork on your desk. Inside he found a large mahogany desk, behind which was a plush leather chair. Oil paintings of generic wilderness landscapes hung on the walls in ornate frames, while on the desk an elegant woman cast in bronze held a gas lamp above her head. There were comfortable chairs for clients, and in the corner was a small table with a bottle of whiskey and a set of glasses. Henslow picked up the bottle. It was Akadoisen, the twelve, not the eighteen. I'm going to look like a very expensive detective sitting in here. Tomorrow morning, you have a meeting with Mr. Randall Ory. He has a small insurance firm, used to do some work for my father. He needs some help with a claim he believes to be fraudulent. It probably will not be very exciting, but he will pay you more than your plus money. Henslow started to ask a question, but she stopped him. The police would not help me. Rose would not help me. You helped me. And if I had found you first, my brother would still be alive. You'll have to take cases like Ori's to stay in business, but not every case will be about money. Other people have missing children, too. We've seen some of them. You may have a special talent for picking up heavy crates and moving them around, but this city is full of helpless people, and they need you more than they need coffee. And when you do not have an active case, you will continue to work on mine. And when you are ready, we will ruin them. We will destroy them all. We will do it right, as you promised me in the cave. Will you help me? She offered her hand to him. Will you keep your promise? And that was Goodbye to All That by G.L. McDorman. Did you enjoy it? Are you purchasing a digital copy of this author's novella, The Quality of Mercy? I did. Your narrator this week was our very own associate editor, Drew Sebastini. Writer and designer, editor and inventor, brewer and narrator, Drew's been called a lot of things in his career, some nicer than others. By day, he spins stories with words and pictures as an advertising copywriter and creative director. But by the light of the moon, he can be found weaving tales for sound and screen and alchemizing bubbly brews with hops and barley. He lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada with his wife, son, and a menagerie of small creatures. Discover more about Drew at www.idrewthis.ca. Tales to Terrify is produced by myself, editor Scott Silk, as well as our usual host, Stephen Kilpatrick, and associate editors Drew Sebastini and Seth Williams under a Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives 4.0 International License. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you can, please head on over to our Patreon page to donate a bit so that we can continue to support our authors and pay our server costs. And don't forget to let me know if you like this or any of our other stories.
I hope you've enjoyed hearing from Drew, Seth, and myself as guest hosts. Join us next week for episode 300 and the triumphant return of our formidable host, Stephen Kilpatrick. Until then, this has been Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.